Let's bow in prayer once more, please. Our Heavenly Father, as we come now to open your scripture and hear from you through your word, we we ask that you yourself would teach us. Open our minds and our hearts to your truth and to how we ought to apply it to our lives. And bless us in this time, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So have you ever had a problem with another believer that you just couldn't work out? Maybe you did a business deal together, and now this icon of the Christian faith won't give you your part of the money. Or maybe you loaned them an expensive tool, and he won't give it back. Or you loaned a guy some money, and now he says he doesn't have the money to repay you. But he just went on vacation to the Caribbean, and he bought a new truck. And you can't, you can't work it out. You can't make the guy see your reason. What do you do? The text that we're going to look at today in 1 Corinthians gives us an idea about what to do and what not to do if you ever find yourself in that kind of situation. You and someone else both claim to be a Christian, but you have a problem between you and you can't work it out. 1 Corinthians 6, beginning with verse 1. Does any one of you... When he has a case against his neighbor, dare to go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more matters of this life? So if you have law courts dealing with matters of this life, do you appoint them as judges who are of no account in the church? I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is not among you one wise man who will be able to decide between his brethren, but brother goes to law with brother and that before unbelievers? Actually, then, it is already a defeat for you that you have lawsuits with one another. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? On the contrary, you yourselves wrong and defraud. You do this even to your brethren. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. I've been around a few years, been in church for all of them, and I've seen a lot of conflict between believers. But I cannot recall a time when I saw a believer actually file a lawsuit against another believer to sort something out. I may not be remembering one. There may be one. It does happen. But it's not that common, at least in the churches I've been a part of. It just hasn't been a thing that happened much. There have been plenty of disputes. I've known of a few cases of Christian arbitration, which is a good thing to settle disputes. But Christians suing Christians is not necessarily an everyday thing. And so I look at this text this week, and I'm thinking to myself, why did the Lord preserve this in His Word for us? Maybe it's because it's been so effective that even iffy church members know they're not supposed to do that. 
<laughs> maybe that's why. Maybe it's working. Uh, or uh, the other thing that, that occurred to me is this business of, of a believer suing another believer is down at the end of a long road. And we might be on that road, but not be at the end yet. So there are things here that we can learn. And, and we're going to look at this extreme case to try to get an understanding of what the Lord wants us to, to, to learn from this. The Corinthians had some problems that we, that we realized just from the nature of this rebuke in the first part of chapter 6. They, they, had, they had too high a view of the world. They had too low of a view of believers and of the congregation of believers. And they had a failure to understand and appreciate the radical change that God works in the human heart when he saves someone. Now, that fundamental change is the main point of this passage, and the failure to understand that radical, fundamental change that God works from the inside out, um, that's what leads to thinking too much of the world and too little of the church. And when that wrong thinking gets well-established and just seems normal, and Christians have a, have a point of conflict, they tend to do all the wrong things. We get a good sense of how serious this problem is just by noticing the strong language that Paul uses. He was appalled that this had actually happened in that church. Verse 1 says, Does any one of you, when he has a case against his neighbor, dare to go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Paul uses a common euphemism in uh, for this problem in this verse, literally it says a matter against another, and the original readers would have understood that to mean a matter before a court or one that's headed there. So even before he says anything about the judges, they already know the subject matter he's talking about. And, and he's appalled that they would dare to take their conflict before a secular court that one of them would file suit against another of them is grievous to Paul. And the wording here is actually much stronger than you can get it in English without adding words. Um, in the original Greek, it just jumps off the page at you. In, in Greek, if you want to emphasize a word, you just move it to the front of the sentence. Just put it first. And we do some of that in English, but it's, sometimes it's awkward. You can only move some words that way and have it work. And, but they do it with wild abandon in Greek. If you want to emphasize it, you just put the word first. And so here's a more literal reading of the first part of this verse. He dares any one of you? <laughs> that, that, that's a little awkward in English. You'd think somebody made a mistake if it were printed that way. But the point is, Paul did everything he could to emphasize that word dare. How dare you do such a thing? Did somebody actually dare to do that? He obviously thinks this is a bold, sinful act that has taken place. And the problem involves Christians who can't agree, and they want to go and get an unbeliever to decide for them which one is right, if either of them is right. Paul says, before the unrighteous, and not before the saints. Now, unrighteous here doesn't refer to activity, but to the nature of people who are not saved. In this case, it's not about some outward morality or immorality. 
They've not yet come to Christ, and so they're not yet righteous. When you're saved, the righteousness of Christ is imputed to you, and you become righteous. They haven't had that blessing, and so they are the unrighteous. However moral they may be, however lofty their position may be, people who are not in Christ are unrighteous. That's their nature. The word saints in verse 1 comes from the Greek word hagias, and it, it really translates holy ones, and it should be translated that way. I don't know why none of the modern translators have been willing to move away from this word saint, despite all of the baggage it has. So just understand, this is not some set of super-Christians, and it's not a professional football team. <laughs> These are the holy ones. Paul is making this distinction between Christians and the children of this world. They have not been made righteous. We have been made righteous. They are not holy. We are holy in Christ. So verse 1 is a statement of the problem, and to understand the problem, you have to understand that fundamental difference. We're not sort of like them. We're nothing like them, and they're nothing like us. They can't even understand our values, let alone make judgments about them. Some of the Corinthians dared to take their conflicts before unbelieving judges and demand that one of the unrighteous decide for them how Christians are supposed to be righteous. Paul begins to make clear why, why these actions are such a concern to him by adding to this holy versus not holy argument and, and asserting more characteristics of those who have not yet been made holy. Look at verses 2 and 3 again. Or do you not know that the saints, the holy ones, will judge the world? And if the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? Or do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more matters of this life? Now often when, when we think about our position in life, our focus is on here and now. You know, I've got things to do today. I've got things to do tomorrow. People are waiting for certain things from me. And, and I have this position and this standing, and I've got to get to that goal and we have to do that. There are things staring us in the face all the time. We have to deal with present realities. But the problem is sometimes we forget other important realities. And so your present position in life might be high. You may have some authority somewhere. You may be well-respected somewhere. Or your situation may be really low right now. You, you may be in humble circumstances and working in relative obscurity but let's think beyond the immediate, whatever that may be, whatever problems or blessings you have right now, if we go beyond the, the immediate, beyond the things that may not even change in this life as we progress through our days, we should understand that each and every believer has a very high standing, much higher than we tend to realize. God wants us to understand the status that we have because of our association with Jesus Christ, because he lives in us, and to think about how that standing impacts our lives while we're living down here. How do we apply our privilege to the decisions we have to make in this life? So Paul asked the question, do you not know that you will judge the world? Maybe you didn't know that. 
maybe we don't all know that, I'm pretty sure. Maybe you never even thought of it that way or realized that you could or that you should. And yet Paul seems surprised that the Corinthians do not appear to know that they're going to sit in judgment of the unrighteous. When Jesus returns to judge those who have opposed him, every believer is going to be involved in that process of judgment, sitting in judgment of this world, actively participating in what Jesus is doing, agreeing with his righteous judgments against those who have resisted him. And if that's where you're headed, if that's what you're going to do in the future, Paul says, are you not competent now to judge the trivial cases? And and that's a good translation of his question. If the world is judged by you, are you not competent to try the trivial cases? Or the small matters would be another good way to translate that. Now, compared to that coming judgment, everything in this life is a trivial case. It's a small matter. Are you not capable of judging these these little things? Now, if you're uncertain, can you not find a believer who can help you with that? Verse 3 asks, do you not know that you will judge angels? Maybe you didn't. But again, whether you know it or not, Paul thinks you should know it. Now, this may mean that in the future, we will participate in the judgment of the fallen angels, the demons, just as we're participating in the judgment of the world itself. As Jesus judges them, we may have a part in that. Or it may mean that we're going to have some authority over the holy angels in eternity. The, the purpose of the angels is to minister to the saints as the Father directs them to do. And they're going to continue that function in eternity. And the Greek word used here for judge was sometimes used to mean rule over. So maybe, do you not know that you're going to rule over angels? You're going to have some, you're going to be giving them direction in heaven. So whichever of those two meanings you ascribe or whether you, you, you grab a hold of both of them, you certainly can do that. The point is that as a believer in Jesus Christ, you have very high status that includes authority and the ability to judge between right and wrong. And and if that ability is going to culminate in your participating in the judgment of the world and the judgment of angels, can you not handle some of the little things now? Now, we should admit that despite that encouragement and that reminder about our future, there are situations we encounter where we just don't know what to do. I mean, nobody has all the answers all the time. And so what does a Christian do when when he has a conflict that he can't resolve and and, and he's just stuck? Verse 4 says, so if you have law courts dealing with matters of this life, Do you appoint them as judges who are of no account in the church? Still telling us what not to do. (laughs) He will get around to what to do instead. Now, as I thought about this verse this week, I couldn't help but think of certain justices on our Supreme Court. Their positions are incredibly high. They have authority that is vast 
Their, their decisions affect hundreds of millions of people for generations to come. And yet, even they are of no account in the church. No matter how high a person's position in this world, no matter how much influence that person may have, no matter how expert they may be in matters of law, those who are not servants of Jesus Christ have no standing in his church. They have no idea how Christians are supposed to behave, or what we're supposed to think, or what we're supposed to value, and they are of no account in his church. Their status among us is nil. And Paul is saying, do not voluntarily hand over your freedom of conscience to somebody like that, to somebody who can't even understand, to somebody whose life is actively turned against the things of God, to somebody who's of no account in the church. Now, if someone sues you, You have no option but to go into that secular court and try to defend yourself. If you don't show up, you lose, no matter how ridiculous the allegations were. But if you initiate a lawsuit, you're choosing to submit to whatever this unbelieving judge decides is right. You've bound yourself in advance to whatever he decides. You're voluntarily giving away your freedom of conscience, your authority, to someone who is of no account in God's church. Now, I recognize that in our time, there there are a few Christian judges to be found. There, There may even be a few who are more than Christian in name only. But when Paul wrote, that was not the case. There was not a Christian judge anywhere. So if you filed a lawsuit, you'd be rolling the dice, hoping that you would get that one out of however many that might be in Christ and understand what you're talking about. That's quite a gamble. But when Paul wrote this, there was no chance at all. Now, these judges were very important people. They were very respectable people. They had high status, but it was high status among the worldly. And Paul reminds us that they are of no account in the church. They have no standing, no authority, no real comprehension of what we are about, and no ability whatsoever to apply Scripture to a question and come up with the right answer. So why would a believer ever intentionally hand their life over to that person to make decisions? That would be the height of foolishness, which is why Paul says in verse 5, I say this to your shame. Voluntarily giving an unbeliever that kind of authority over your life is shamefully sinful and foolish. Now, in the rest of verse 5 and verse 6, Paul uses a little more of that gift of sarcasm we've talked about before. It's not sarcasm to hurt but it is uh, sarcasm to highlight the foolishness of something in such a way as to get the attention of the thick-headed. And so more literally, the the sentence that begins in the middle of verse 5 and continues to verse 6 says this, So there is not among you one wise man who will be able to judge between his brethren, but brother goes to law with brother, and that before unbelievers? 
Okay. What are you going to answer to that if you just filed suit? <laughs> I didn't ask anybody. So what, what they should have done instead of going to a secular court before an unbelieving judge is to constitute their own court. Those other courts were constituted by people. Everything about government is constituted by people. And within the church, we can do whatever is fitting to do. They should have constituted their own court. They should have agreed on two or three trustworthy, godly people and agreed to both both parties agree to do whatever those godly people conclude. That's Christian arbitration. If it's formalized, it can happen in an informal way. And that's what Paul is is pushing toward as he mocks their decision, thinking there's not anybody in the church who can handle this. Work it out in the church. If you can't agree with your opponent, constitute your own court by finding two or three that the other guy can agree are pretty godly people and let them decide. And then you abide by that decision. Now this is an option anywhere in the world. This is an option under any government. People can do this everywhere in any language. They can do it in the church or outside the church. We're going to, we're not going to take this to court. We're going to get somebody that we trust to decide. That's what he's, that's what he's pushing for. And believe me, any believer with a reasonable knowledge of scripture is more qualified than the lost, loftiest of lost judges to decide between two believers who can't agree. Anybody who loves the scripture. Is going to make better decisions than somebody who does not know the Lord. And there are many in the church who have great wisdom. Paul points out that, that those who go in the other direction, those who go before a secular judge, have already lost. Verse 7 it says, Actually then, it is already a defeat for you that you have lawsuits with one another, why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? What does it say to the world if we can't work out our own problems? What damage does it do to the testimony of the church if we can't figure out how to get along and work out a problem? We, we who claim to have life itself and hope, and joy, and peace from God in Jesus Christ. We who claim a gospel that overcomes every sin, we who claim to have the mind of Christ, and to offer to the world the only hope of heaven. What does it say? If we make those claims, and then we have to go ask a child of the world, to solve our trivial squabbles. It's already a crushing defeat. The instant a believer files suit against another believer, there has been a crushing blow to everyone's testimony. It makes our claims to, to have true knowledge ring awfully hollow in the ears of those who are looking on. And so Paul says, okay, if that doesn't work, if that approach hinted at in his sarcasm in verses 5 and 6, if that doesn't, pro, that doesn't work, you find in somebody wise in the church, why not rather just be wronged? Why not rather just be defrauded? Just let it go. 
That would be better than taking it before the unbelievers. Whatever you think you've been beaten out of is of far less value than the testimony you set aside when you go to a secular judge to solve a Christian problem. Whatever you might lose, what is it in comparison to your testimony and the testimony of this other Christian and the testimony of your church? There's also another way in which such actions would indicate that we have already lost. In verse 8, Scripture says, On the contrary, you yourselves wrong and defraud, this even to brethren. The one who initiates such an action against another believer in a secular court is driven by some sinful motive and is doing wrong to the other brother or sister. Such action is inconsistent with who we are in Christ. And so the brother who files suit is not only giving up his own freedom of conscience to whatever this secular judge decides, but he's giving up his brother or his sister's freedom of conscience too because once they're drug in there, they have to submit to the guy as well. Now that person is subjected to the whims of an unbelieving mind. Paul closes this argument by emphasizing again the radical distinction between believers and unbelievers, this time from a very different perspective. This time he puts our status and the status of these unbelievers into perspective in regards to who's going to be in heaven and who is not. Verses 9 and 10, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. The unrighteous are not going to be in heaven. Now that list of sins is not an It's not an exhaustive list. It's not intended to be that. There are other sins that are committed by people who are not going to be in heaven. But we should understand that that this list is, is referencing the settled character of a person, not uh, maybe a, a, a sin that somebody commits and then repents of. Sadly, genuine believers can and do commit acts of unrighteousness, sometimes even these on the list. But for us who have been changed, that unrighteous act is out of character. We grieve over it. We repent of it. We are restored to our Lord. For others, this is just who they are. They've not been changed. They're unrighteous. And that unrighteousness manifests itself in some very specific ways. Others besides these, but certainly these. And so Paul details some of the manifestations of unrighteousness in the lives of those who don't know him. And it's striking how popular these sins have become in our society. This this reads like a political platform. These were the recent campaign promises we all endured for so many months. How many of these are glorified in this society? Fornication. False worship involving idols, adultery, 
being effeminate. Now, this word means unmanly. It covers a spectrum from prissy men to the more submissive partner in a homosexual relationship between males. It's distinct from homosexuality. It's a different sin. Even prissy men will not be in heaven. But then the next one on the list is homosexuality. Thieves, covetous. You know, you can't be a socialist without being covetous. Not going to be any of those in heaven. Nobody covetous is going to be there. Drunkards, revilers. How many make their living in politics by being revilers? How many in Hollywood keep their status as celebrities by reviling constantly? Swindlers. It's not an exhaustive list, but it certainly encompasses a great deal of our society. And Paul is saying, don't kid yourself. Nobody whose character is settled on those things is going to inherit the kingdom of heaven. It's another way of his emphasizing the foolishness of voluntarily handing your life over to an unbeliever to decide what's right and what's wrong. It is sobering to consider the severity of God's stance against those things. They will not be tolerated. Nobody who's that way is going to be in heaven. Thankfully, after that stunning news, comes one of the most encouraging verses in all of Scripture. Verse 11, such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and in the Spirit of our God. Such were some of you. What a beautiful reminder of God's bountiful grace. There is no sin God's grace cannot conquer. And for everyone who has trusted him, he has conquered every sin. It's all past tense for us. Such were some of you. All of our sins are forgiven forever. It says you were washed. It's a deal that is already done. 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. It's a done deal. Jesus paid it all. It's already been applied to you if you're in Christ. You were washed. The work of Christ is complete. The work of Christ in you is complete. You were sanctified. That's past tense. Sanctified comes from a form of that word hagios. It just means made holy. You were made holy. You've already been given the righteousness of Christ. It was imputed to you at salvation. It says you were justified. That means that a legal transaction has taken place in which you were made just before your righteous judge. And that all that took place in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of our God Himself. Such were some of you, but you were washed. And those of you who are in Christ are that way no longer. Well, this elevated status that you now have is entirely a work of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is not to puff you up because you didn't do it. 
but you need to know what you got. Jesus did this work in you. You need to know who you are now. You didn't put yourself in the position you hold, but at least know where you are. You benefited by the work of Christ. Never give away your freedom of conscience, your authority to judge what is right and wrong. Never voluntarily give that over to an unbeliever. Don't give away the freedom Christ died to give you. Well, these lessons that underlie this interesting rebuke are very important. We can apply them to more than just lawsuits. Don't think too much of this world. Don't think too little of Christians and of Christians banded together in churches. And understand and remember the phenomenal transforming work that Christ has performed in every one of his children. Let's bow in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this part of your scripture, for the insights it holds. Help us to be mindful of what you've accomplished in us. Help us to be mindful of the position that every child of this world is in. May it May it prompt compassion in us, an eagerness to convey the hope that is in Christ, but never an eagerness to compromise with unrighteousness. Help us to apply this passage well and to live well for you. And for those within hearing who do not know you, who are fighting against you, striving, or thinking they can just ignore you, would we beg your mercy that they would repent before they stand before you to be judged. Be glorified as we respond to your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.